0: Well, welcome to you tonight. Glad to have you with us once again. I haven't scared you off on Wednesdays yet, huh? Well, that's good. We're gonna continue in our series right now called The Thoughts of God. We've been looking at the doctrine of the Bible. The Bible is the foundation for everything that we do, not just at this church, but in our faith, in our daily life. This is our compass. This is our true north. And so it's important to look at this, and we've been talking about uh, doctrines associated with the Word of God, with the Bible. We introduced a few weeks ago as we started the doctrine of revelation, and we spoke of the two ways that God reveals Himself. In the created order, we see His handiwork in nature, and we see in Romans 1, it speaks of His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature clearly perceived in the creation, in the things that have been made. And so that takes away our excuse. We know as we step outside, we breathe the air, we look around, we know there is a God. But we don't yet know that God by that revelation. So we also need what is called special revelation, right? We need something whereby he has spoken to a specific individual or a community for the purpose of of writing down his word for you and I, that we might know him, know his identity, know his son, Jesus Christ. And the Bible that you have in your hands right now, be that a a physical copy of, of the scriptures or a digital copy of the scriptures, in some fashion, the content of what you are reading is something that fits in that category of special revelation. And so we're gonna continue on and talk tonight about the process whereby that is given to you, uh, whereby that is being recorded, and that is called inspiration. Many people will say that they believe that the Bible is inspired. But not everybody agrees on the definition of inspiration. And it really depends on where you put your focus. Do you say that you believe in inspiration and you focus on the writers of scripture? Or do you put your focus on the writing of scripture? Or do you put your focus on the reader of scripture? Where you put your focus determines your definition of inspiration. And so we're going to study this tonight. We're going to delve deep. We have touched on it. We've kind of dipped our toe in that pool a little bit. But we're going to go deep on inspiration tonight. So let's define it right off the top here. And to do so, we're going to need to go to the scripture. And we've looked at this verse before in this study. Would you take a look at 2 Timothy 3.16? This is kind of a flagship verse. Whenever you talk about the scripture and you talk about bibliology, you gotta start right here because Paul defines the scripture for us uh, to his young ward, this preacher boy by the name of Timothy, and he says the following. All scripture is breathed out by God. And then he goes on from there and he lists several benefits. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, etc. But if you haven't already, I want you to underline that phrase Breathed out by God Because it is here where we're going to find our definition This is where the word comes from, you understand The word inspiration This doctrine, it finds its inception in this sentence This verse, breathed out by God Comes from that Greek compound word Theonoustos uh, It's really two words Theos means God Nustos comes from pneuma Which is spirit or breath Okay, so this is a word you must know that Paul invented. He coined this term. And he's using it to describe how we got the scriptures. Theonuso, they were breathed out by God. And you should also know that the Latin word inspirata comes from this. It comes from theonustos, inspirata. Well, what does that sound like? Sounds like our English word inspiration or inspired. And so that's that this is the first appearance of the word whereby we get our word inspiration. It shows up here first. Never before in history is it recorded prior to this moment right here. And the context that Paul is speaking it, uh speaking in which deals with the supernatural delivery of God's word of scripture is where we get our definition. I've already put the definition in your notes, but we'll put it on the screen here. It is this. Inspiration is the process by which God worked through his appointed human authors using their own personalities and styles. We're going to talk about that more in a bit. To compose and record his thoughts, and this is very important, without error. Without error. And we're gonna flesh that out. We're gonna explain that definition as we go. But I should tell you, not everybody agrees on that definition. Sadly, there's an argument, there's a debate about the inspiration of Scripture, and uh, it's going on inside the church itself. There's a movement called Progressive Christianity, uh, which is what it's calling itself these days. It used to be called the Emergent Church. I'm going to be talking about Progressive Christianity in about a month from now, because when we wrap up this series, I'm going to start a new series on Wednesdays called Hot Potatoes. Yeah, and it's going to deal with what the Bible says on a variety of controversial issues. And one of them, among many, is going to be progressive Christianity. And I'm going to talk about that at length and and where its strategy comes from, what the scriptures tell us about that. But what progressive Christians teach on the scripture is they deny that the Bible is 100% from the mind of God okay and so because of this people have gotten a little fast and loose with the word inspiration or inspired have you noticed how words and terms change as the years roll by you know there are certain phrases that used to mean one thing you used to use them in that context and now you bust that word out today and it means something completely different has that ever happened to you where you bust that out Okay? Uh, the, I mean, I'm, even in like pop culture and just slang and lingo and stuff like that, I do this. So I embarrass my kids all the time. I'll say something that I used to think was hip or cool, and they look at me like, you know, a calf looking at a new gate. Like they're just confused, like, Dad, what are you doing right now? I called something the bomb not that long ago. I go, That's the bomb. And my daughter's like, what? And really, my wife does that too. And I'm like, oh, don't you be self-righteous. You, you're my, you know, we're like we're the same price range. You know what I'm saying? And, and that's one thing. Now, it gets even worse when you use a word and now it's like offensive. You know, that happens faster and faster. Suddenly words are inappropriate. They got to change the meaning of words. Even dictionaries are redefining words to suit cultural trends and sociological ideas and things like that. But even just like standard words. In their inception, they meant a completely different thing. The word demagogue, it used to mean a popular leader, right? Today, no political leader would want to be called a demagogue. A demagogue is a politician that panders to people's uh, emotions and prejudices. You would never want to be accused of engaging in demagoguery, all right? Uh, The word naive used to mean natural. If something was naive or someone was naive, they they were just natural. right, wasn't really an insult. You call someone naive today, you're calling them a simpleton. You're saying they're gullible. Uh, The word awful used to mean full of awe. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? Awful, right? You're full of awe. And now, awful is a word used to describe the Carolina Panthers. And so, there's a lot of... Change, hey, they're my team now too, you know, and there's a lot of of changes that take place. And this word inspiration, we talked about how Paul coined this term, and uh, often, of course, as you know, today when the average person talks about inspiration, what are they referring to? They're talking about getting their creative juices flowing. They're talking about an experience that they had. They saw something. They heard something. They, 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 They witnessed, experienced something, and it motivated them. To, to do, to be, to create. Maybe it was a song. Maybe it was a sermon. Maybe it was a, a speech or, or an action, you know, that they were inspired uh, to, to move on and, and, and take a stand or create or do something like that. But even if you take that word inspiration and you associate it with what Paul is talking about, the delivery of Scripture, there has been a shift in church circles as to how that word is understood. It used to be enough Historically, if you said, I believe that the the Bible is inspired, if you said that, that was enough to communicate that you believed that it came from God, it was of divine origin and it was transmitted to human authors and what they wrote down was his word and it was without error. That, That was enough to say that. Well, then along came some people who said, ah, but that word inspired, that doesn't really apply to the words. It only applies to the writers of those words. And so the the authors were inspired, but the words that were written down are not, you see. And so they, they started to muck with the meaning a little bit. And so over the years, those who embraced the Bible as inspired by God as his word, they had to add words to that phrase. They had to say, I believe in the uh, and we'll 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 define this in just a few moments, but it's this phrase: the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. All right, why are there so many? You know, $64 words out there in theology is because people keep messing with definitions. And you got to add words to make sure people understand what you're talking about. So people would say, I believe in the verbal plenary uh, inspiration of scripture. And then they added the word infallible just to make sure everybody understood. I don't think there's any mistakes in here in this book. We gotta be super duper clear because people are just running away with all these crazy definitions that they're coming up with. They're concocting. Uh, But here's what we mean. When we say the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, here's our definition in your notes, all right? What is meant by this is that every word in every part of Scripture has its origin in God, okay? So this covers those bases. Every word in every part. When we say verbal, That pertains to words, verbiage, right? Every word, those are the word, the very words, individual words of the scripture are from God. And when we say plenary, plenary means complete. It means full. And so we mean in word and in its totality. So every single part of scripture, all the words therein, every single word is the word of God, amen? And so it's not the ideas, It's not the thoughts of the Bible that are inspired. It is the words. It is the words. And so when I say this, and this is something you might want to write down in your margin because I think it's worth noting. When we say that all the words of Scripture are inspired of God, that pertains to the original writings in the original languages because that is how they were written. So, You may love the translation that you're reading from right now. I'm sure it's a good one. Whether it's the King James or the NIV or the NASB or the ESV or the Holman Christian Standard or whatever, there's a lot of good, for the most part, very accurate translations that are out there that are readable. But if it is in English, we are not saying that every English word on the page of the Bible that you're looking at right now is inspired. Okay, we're talking about what is what is called the original autographs of scripture what those authors those writers the paul's the the Moseses, the david's and such what they wrote in in those languages be it hebrew aramaic greek those are the words that are inspired of god doesn't mean that the version some of you are like well i could chuck that version no it doesn't mean that at all Because I also believe that the Bible is clear and can be translated and can be understood. All right? But there's a reason that I spend time as a teacher and I go back and I look at the languages. And I take time and I study that. And I, you know, I want to be a faithful steward of that. And so we we do look at that. But let me give you right now, as we as we kind of delve into this, I want to give you some other theories on the inspiration of scripture. And the first one I would tell you about is this thing that's out there called partial inspiration. Partial inspiration. And here's, the, here's what that is in your notes. Partial inspiration simply means that the, the scripture writers are only right about matters of faith. That's what that theory says. It means that the, the writers of scripture, were, were right, they were right when it came to the spiritual uh, uh, matters of God, of love, of virtue, of faith, living that out, all that stuff. They were right on that stuff. But, uh, but scientific stuff, uh, historical stuff, okay? Informational type, of, there are errors, they would say. That's what this theory said. They kind of picture the Bible as a two-story house, and the first story has scientific references and historical data in there and that stuff doesn't really have a lot of merit because it's error ridden they would say you know pertaining to the uh the origin of the world and all of that but the second floor that's that's the metaphysical realm and it's that sort of thing where we we learn about god and the love of god and and uh faith in god and all and the bible has value in that but this other stuff that's really the bible is out of its depth is what they're saying. So they say that it's it's a partially inspired book, and this theory is very popular for people who um, are intimidated by highly educated people who tell them, you know, the Earth evolved slowly over millions or billions of years, and uh, you know, rather to do the work and to reconcile what we observe in creation with what we read in our Bibles people sometimes take the easy route and they just embrace the generally accepted understanding of science or of philosophy and then they make excuses as to why scripture doesn't match up with all of that. And so people, they, they buy this theory and they, they begin with a certainty of what they don't believe, okay? They come to the scripture knowing what they are willing to receive and what they will not take away, from the Bible and so it's a presupposition and so they come to it and they've already got the mind made up because they've been informed by the education system, by culture, by all of these things here's the problem with that in your notes you can jot this down who can tell what's inspired and what's not if, you're, if your position is that only parts of the Bible are of God then who are you to say what those are I mean, how can we accept one sentence of scripture and not another? And who is qualified to make that call? Are you qualified to make that call? Am I qualified to make that call? If you say yes, then what you're saying is, I'm inspired, okay? You're saying, no, the Bible's not inspired. Well, that means you are because you are authoritative enough to discern what is or is not authoritative, okay? Uh, we must not deny authority to passages simply because we can't reconcile them with our sensibilities. Is that fair? I mean, that's, that's granting authority to the reader. You see, you're putting yourself on a higher level than the scriptures themselves in order to, to discern what you think should be acceptable as coming from God so you're putting a lot of stock a lot of trust in your own ability to discern such things you see and and really your your argument is kind of full of holes if you say well the bible I I could tell that it's flawed and what is the definition of flawed well it's written by fallible humans well aren't you one of those and so if you're, if you're determining what portions of the Bible are fallible, you're relying on a fallible mind to make that determination. I've heard a scholar refer to such an idea as Dalmatian theology. Okay? Because uh, the Bible is inspired in spots, and we're inspired to spot the spots. Dalmatian theology. Okay, so... Uh, the next theory I want to tell you about is called thoughts, not words. Thoughts, not words. And here's the, here's the summation of that in your notes. God gave the thoughts. Man put them into human words. Thoughts came from God. Man wrote down the words. In other words, it's, it's not the words that are important. It's the thoughts. It's the ideas. It's the concepts. You know, don't get hung up on the verbiage used. You just, you use the meaning behind the words. It's the big ideas. And with this, everything just gets allegorical, okay? Because you're looking for the concept. You're looking for the idea. This approach definitely affects how we interpret scripture because there's literally nothing, according to this theory about the words themselves that are of supernatural origin uh, and value. it's It's the concepts behind them. Here's the problem for you to write down. Ideas are conceived and transmitted by words. You have to have, how do you know what an idea is if it's not transmitted by words? All ideas are communicated by words. You can't recognize an idea apart from words. You can't dissociate one from the other. Uh, If thoughts were all that mattered and not the words themselves, then God could use any piece of literature to convey ideas. I mean, who's to say, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien isn't inspired? Who's to say uh, J.K. Rowling or, or uh, uh, you know, Charles Dickens or something like that? Who's to say it's got to be a, a book? If, if words don't matter, it doesn't have to be a book. Could be a painting. Could be a piece of music, you see. Nature, for, for that matter. Why do we need anything? Just look, go outside and let, let God convey ideas to us. And we receive all that. Here's uh, Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Scripture indicates that the words themselves are inspired. It makes that claim. 1 Corinthians 2.13, I'm going to read to you from the New American Standard Version because I really think it, it nails this. Uh, it says, we uh, also speak these things. When you speak, what do you use? Words, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those, in what? In words taught by the Spirit combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words, okay? And so according to scripture itself, words are central in inspiration. Next area I just want to mention here is this idea that uh, in your notes that the Bible contains the word of God. The Bible contains the word of God. And the idea here is that the Bible is just a human book and that God speaks to the reader occasionally in the process of reading so the book there's nothing inspired about the, there really is no inspiration in the book itself okay the inspiration happens in the course of reading and not at the same time in same place every time or same person for that matter god according to this theory god engages with the reader and and every once and again will inspire the reader And that book will become the word of God in that instance, okay? So the Bible is just this run-of-the-mill example of writing, and periodically God breaks in and then makes it, for a moment, his word in various moments of encounter with the reader. And the interpreter's job is to be sensitive and to be aware and to do the work of stripping away uh, the mythology and the embellishment and kind of cutting through the crap all right, of the Bible, to get to the meaning, the real truth, and uh, dispensing with all, all the ancillary stuff that, that might obscure that truth, like you know all this rigmarole about a burning bush, or walking on water, or raising the dead. We gotta demythologize the Bible and get at the meaning of the Bible so that God can reveal it to us, you see. Here's the problem in your notes. It's too subjective, too subjective. It can mean anything, to anyone, you see. And, and so it's all subject to the reader's mindset. Bible can mean one thing to you, one thing to me. Is, is that a standard? Does that sound like a standard? No, that, that's just, that's a, that's a perpetually gray area. I, this is why I can't stand Bible studies where people are in a circle and there's no, no agreed standard of interpretation. And you just go around the circle. Well, what do you think it means? Well, I think it means... Da, 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 da. And then the next person goes, how interesting. I think it means. And then you, by the end of it, you're like, well, okay. Well, I guess we're done. We'll see you next week. And we'll just hear what everybody thinks about that. And there's, there's no, now well, hear me out. I understand, I understand that there's going to be uh, a variety of interpretations on a given passage. I fully understand that. I, I appreciate that. I welcome that. Let's, if we don't agree on an interpretation, let's discuss that. But here's what we got to agree on. No matter who's correct, there is one right interpretation. All right? There, there can't be two completely separate interpretations that are at odds with one another. There cannot be. And so there's, there is a right way to interpret a passage. Now, a passage may have multiple applications. I agree with that. But you don't you don't read a passage and come away from it with with two completely different uh, understandings of what that passage means that are at odds with one another. There's only one, and so God is not in the business of subjective truth. He's in the business of objective truth. Amen. Now we got to talk about uh, something called dictation theory. Dictation theory, and here's here's how that is basically summed up in your notes. This is. The idea that writers mindlessly wrote what God relayed. All right? They're just, uh, the human authors are just the pens at work. You know, they're just, they're kind of doing this automatic thing. They're like in a trance. They have no idea what's going on. Their personalities are not engaged in that at all, and they're just in this zombie-like state, and God is just speaking to them and verbatim. They're writing that out. Now, does the Bible ever give us passages that might kind of sort of fall into that category. Yeah, well, I don't know about the zombie thing or the trance-like state, but I do think that there are portions of Scripture where God said, write this down verbatim, and they basically took dictation. I think that Moses, to a degree, did that in the Pentateuch. I think that there are some instances of prophets, Habakkuk being one of them. He told the prophet, he said, uh, you know, in Habakkuk 2, he said, uh, write the vision, Make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. And so the prophet's goal is not to ad lib. All right? That's a big no-no. When God says, write this down, you, you, need to, you need to say what God said. All right? You want to be very, very clear that this is what God wants communicated to God's people. But does that sum up the totality of the Bible? is all scripture just this kind of by rote, uh dictation all direct revelation no i think that there's a, an idea called direct revelation i think there's something called indirect revelation so here's the problem when we say that writers mindlessly wrote what god relayed in your notes here uh the problem is there's a vast array of styles that is apparent in scripture is that true If you've read your Bible enough, you've probably picked up on that, that they don't all sound the same. It doesn't always sound like one dude, right? Clearly, when you read David, when you read Peter, John, Luke, Paul, there is a vast array of styles. Uh, Theirs is the product of an indirect revelation of God. What do I mean by indirect revelation of God? So here's Matthew. He's got a desire. He's Jewish, he wants to write a gospel that is geared toward the Jew. He wants to present the gospel of the Jewish Messiah. Everyone, scholars agree, of all the four gospels, Matthew's is the most Jewish. There's no doubt about it. So he clearly wanted to do that. Is that a noble goal? Absolutely. So God affirms that desire in Matthew and God uh, speaks into Matthew as Matthew undertakes this goal and tells Matthew what he wants Matthew to say and uses Matthew's desire, his Jewishness, his his ethnic understanding of that culture and incorporates that. Is God capable of doing that? Of course he is. What about Luke? Luke is a doctor. Dr. Luke, right? He's a physician. He's very detailed. He's very, very accurate. When you read Luke's gospel, it reads differently from Matthew's gospel. There's a lot of detail in there. And so when you read Luke's gospel at the beginning, he tells his recipient, uh, Theophilus, what's his name, Theophilus? Theophilus. He says, It seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account. I hope you have a physician that is very detailed. That's the kind of doctor you want. You want a doctor big on details. Luke's big on details. God uses that in the writing of Luke and as well in the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote. It reflects the style, the mindset, the skills of Luke. It's still God writing. It's just God incorporating this man's gifting, his personality, his style, all that stuff. It's a supernatural thing. Paul is the same way. Paul sets out when he writes his epistles. Generally, he probably doesn't sit down thinking, I'm going to write and add to the canon of Scripture today. That's not what he's thinking. He's thinking, I'm gonna deal with this problem in this church in Galatia. You know, we got Gnostics in there and they're trying to mess with everybody. I'm gonna address that issue. We got over here, we got these Judaizers trying to say that the law Needs to be added to the gospel. That's no, no. We're not going to deal with that. Uh, the Thessalonians—they don't have their eschatology right. I got to help put their fears at ease about their departed loved ones. They're already with Christ. This kid Timothy, man, he's got a confidence issue. I'm going to deal with that with these pastoral epistles. Him and him and uh, uh, Titus, right? Th- that's what's on Paul's mind. But as he writes, God's like using that, and He's speaking into Paul. He's giving Paul words, incorporated with ideas that that Paul, in his mindset, is writing. Now, are they unaware that God is using them? No, as they go, they are aware. They're very aware that they are writing, and you see that because he will speak, and he will say, this is God's word, this is the word of the Lord, and the word of the Lord came to me, and the word of the Lord says. And so, how does that work? That's inspiration. That God is able to to utilize the gifting and the mindset of these individuals as he speaks through them, through the Holy Spirit. I asked a question last week, how does a perfect God use imperfect man and create a perfect word? How, how is that possible? How can the Bible live up to the claim that it makes? Because here's what 2 Peter says. 2 Peter 1, it says, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. Okay? But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All right? So God is always in control of the process. He's using the guys as they write. People struggle with that. How can the Bible be the product 100% of humans and 100% of God? In London, there is a cathedral called St. Paul's Cathedral. Gorgeous Majestic cathedral. The architect was Sir Christopher Wren. He started building that thing, 1676, took him 35 years to complete it. He was 44 when he started, he was 79 when he finished. It was his life's work. Sir Christopher Wren, you ask any Londoner, you walk down the street, you see that cathedral, you ask him, who built that? And if they are in the know, they'll say, Sir Christopher Wren. Sir Christopher Wren built that. Now, does that mean that Sir Christopher Wren lugged big, heavy stones from the quarry all the way to the job site, dumped them off, went back? One dude? No. Who did all the work? You got laborers of various kinds. You got carpenters. You got stonemasons. You got uh, people out there, uh, artisans, functioning, laboring under his direction because it all came from his mind. That cathedral would not exist were it not for Sir Christopher Wren, but he wasn't laying all the stones. He's using these guys. They weren't just out there winging it. They weren't just out there going, you know, I think I'd like to do it this way. Did Christopher Wren raise a hammer? Not to my knowledge, but I know that thing exists because of him. And they operated under his direction to erect this amazing structure. Folks, the Bible you have in your hands was, was reliant ultimately upon the mind of a perfect God who utilized imperfect, mortal human beings, but he perfectly instructed them and controlled them and moved through them via the Holy Spirit. nustos God breathed. I think it's no, uh, no con- contradiction, no mistake that the word for breath is also the word for spirit and the Holy Spirit, the Hagias Numa, Numa is the root of Nustos. And so he breathed into them with what? With the Holy Spirit. And he inspired them. We get inspired spirit, right? To do what they do. And so for Jesus, he knew this. He believed this. He said this. He said in Matthew 4, 4, it is written. Anytime Jesus says it is written, he's referring to scripture, Okay. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from where? From the mouth of God. No mistake as to the origin here. All right, I'm going to give you right now some evidences of inspired literature. What are the evidences? Well, first of all, in your notes, it has a miraculous origin. It's got a miraculous origin. What is miraculous about the design and the origin of the Bible? This is not a normal book, is it? This does not go on the shelf next to... uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the Apocrypha. It doesn't go on the shelf next to the Bhagavad Gita. It doesn't go on the shelf next to the Quran. This is not written by one person. This is written by about 40 people. They were from three different continents. They wrote in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. It was written not in one year, not in five years, 10 years, 50 years. It was written over a course of 1,500 years. And despite that, diversity of authorship from all different walks of life, you have fishermen, you've got uh, uh, great uh, politicians and leaders and military people, all right? They're from all, they have nothing in common. And they live centuries apart, some of them a millennia apart. There is still, despite that, unity of purpose. This, this book cannot be considered the invention of any one man. There's no way uh, that the, and it can't be a conspiracy. There's no way that the first person has any idea what the last person that would contribute to the canon would write. Moses lived a millennia before John. Job, the oldest book in the Bible. Job had no idea what Revelation would be like. And so it has a miraculous, miraculous origin. By the way, incredible, incredible. We're going to get into this next week. We talk about reliability. Don't miss next week. Incredible preservation that this book was protected by God, when I, when I show you the number of manuscripts, given how old some of these documents are, the way God preserved this uh, through the discovery of just thousands of manuscripts and fragments, uh, it, it just displays the, the, the perfection of the transmission of God and the protection that would be expected of any book that God would give. If you wouldn't you expect that if God gave communicate to us that he would would preserve it, that he would protect it. You'd expect that of a holy God. Um, Man can't come up with this. Uh, One of my favorite theologians is Louis Sperry Chafer. He said, it is not such a book as man would write if he could or could write if he would. All right? So it's got a miraculous origin. Number two, it's got a thematic continuity. A thematic continuity. What would you say is the main theme of the entire Bible? If you, if you had to say what the main theme of the Bible is, what would it be? And I always like this question because when I talk to an agnostic or an atheist, uh, what I often get from them is, I don't believe in the Bible, and I say, why? And they say, well, you know, the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, I, just, I, you know, I, just don't, I just don't see how they gel. And I go, okay, well, what would you say is the theme of either of those? Well, they have no idea. And, and most of the time, it's because they've never read it. But what is the theme? The theme of the Bible is the establishment of God's authority and the redemption of man. There's no question. All throughout the Bible is about authority, God's authority in the Old Testament, Christ establishing authority in the New Testament. From Genesis 3 all the way through the Gospels, all the way through the epistles of Paul, you've got the redemption of man. To what end? To the glory of God because that is the greatest way to bring glory to God is that that an unredeemed man would find restoration through a holy God in the form of Jesus Christ. And so the Old Testament begins this drama and it describes the fall of man and it describes our need and our inability to meet that need. And the holiness of God is presented and it's contrasted with our utter failure to overcome our sin. And uh, there's this long history of failing that we see played out in the scriptures, and it culminates in Christ dying on our behalf. And so you see this, this theme, this continuity, and uh, the New Testament is the perfect fulfillment. I've said this before, that Christianity is Judaism realized. It is the fulfillment. It is, it is perfected Judaism. It really is. Why? Because it's all in the name. What is the name of our faith? Christianity. Why? Because of the Christ what is the Christ? The Christ, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is just another term for the Messiah. And so as Christians, we believe in and trust in and, and align with a Jewish Messiah. And so it is the fulfillment of what God started in the Old Testament. That's why we don't unhitch from the Old Testament because you have to see the continuity of the Bible. If you don't have continuity, you have no appreciation for the sovereignty of God and the unity of the Bible. And then, number three, another mark of an inspired text there's a fulfillment of prophecy. A fulfillment of prophecy. One of the greatest ways that we can be confident uh, that, that the scriptures are from God um, and that they are trustworthy is the fulfillment of of prophecy did you know well there are two types of prophecy in the bible there's there's what's called uh predictive prophecy and there's what's called didactic prophecy F- predictive prophecy just you guys know that when you think of prophecy this is what you think of it's foretelling that's what prophets do right you know god is going to do this and it's a future event that's predictive prophecy didactic prophecy is the other job of the prophet which is to say The Lord says thus, and usually it's a command or it's a condemnation, okay? People did not like the prophets. That was not a great job to have because you're always ticking people off. You're either telling them something, some disaster is going to befall them (laughs) or you're telling them that, you know, God wants them to do X, Y, and Z and people don't like to be under authority. And that's why a lot of the prophets got killed by the people. They had a tough job. But most of the prophecy in your Bible is predictive, So it's foretelling. And a lot of prophecy in the Bible has already at our point in history been fulfilled. And what that does is it validates the Bible as God's word. And let me give you a few examples. You know there's over 600, by the way. 600 examples of fulfilled prophecy. Uh, One example is in 1 Kings 14. Uh, You had... The kingdom of Israel after, uh, after Solomon divided. So Solomon had a son named Jeroboam, and he split off. So 10 of the tribes of Israel went north. They went up to Samaria. You had the rest of them, just a handful of tribes that stayed down in, in uh, uh, Jerusalem, and we called that the kingdom of Judah. And then you had the kingdom of Israel. So Jeroboam is king in Israel. He gets them all into idolatry. Just completely disregards, disobeys the Lord. There's a prophet named Ahijah. He delivered the following grave news. 1 Kings 14, he says the Lord will strike Israel. And he describes it. He said he's gonna give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam. Now that didn't happen for 200 years. But it was prophetic. And then what happened? 722 BC, here comes Assyria empire of Assyria. they come in they lay waste to the kingdom of israel up in samaria they enslave the people take them far from their homeland they never returned prophecy fulfilled all right now over time southern kingdom they were no better they were just as disobedient as the kingdom of israel up in north and so the prophets down there they admonished judah for 300 years they kept saying you better get straight you better get things right god's not going to let this go And then came along the guy we call the weeping prophet, dude named Jeremiah. He says in Jeremiah 25, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you've not obeyed my words, I will send for all the tribes of the north and Nebuchadnezzar. Does that name sound familiar? King of Babylon, my servant. God called Nebuchadnezzar his servant. That'll mess with you a little bit. And I will bring them against the land and its inhabitants. So God's going to use this pagan nation to come and judge his people in Judah because of their idolatry. And, and, and you know, people kind of blew this off because, you know, they've been here in this 300 years. Well, guess what happens? 596 B.C., here comes Nebuchadnezzar, just as prophesied. And Babylon crushes Judah. And also in that same uh, prophecy by Jeremiah... He got very, very specific. He says, they're going to come in here. They're going to destroy the city. They're going to enslave you. And then he says, after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon. So his, his prophecy extended not just to Judah, but to Judah's captor, Babylon. He says, I'm going to punish the king of Babylon and that nation for their iniquity and make their land an everlasting waste. And then he says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So he's saying, okay, because of your disobedience, I'm gonna make sure that you get destroyed and enslaved, but just for 70 years, and then I'm gonna punish your captor and you're gonna be brought back into this land. That's a whole lot of prophecy right there. It all came true. Every bit of it. The Persians come in. During that exile, they conquer Babylon. That is fulfilled. Cyrus the Great, 539 BC. They conquer Babylon. The Jews remain in exile with Persia until the 70 years are fulfilled. And then God keeps his word. And they come back into the land. They rebuild their city. They rebuild the temple just as prophesied. And by the way, that was prophesied elsewhere outside of Jeremiah. And it mentions the name Cyrus. Allowing them to come back to their homeland. Cyrus didn't exist. It was before he was even born. And so, this all speaks to the fact that prophecy fulfills, uh, uh, the fulfillment of prophecy validates this as God's word. You can't explain. Is there any logical way to explain that? Why did Jesus do miracles? To assert his authority. Why does God speak through the prophets and say what is to come? And then it happens, to assert the authority of the scriptures. Miracles were to affirm the authority of the word made flesh. Prophecy fulfilled was to assert the authority of the word made ink. All right? And then one one more thing here, for in your notes, uh, a mark of inspired literature. It's an obviously divine message. What makes the message of the Bible distinct from other sacred Text well, the message of the Bible it 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 doesn't it doesn't match up with it. There is no message anywhere in an organized religion, in any sacred writing that looks like this. Okay, this doesn't benefit any man or institution as you might expect from a man made document. There's no description of how man can redeem himself, like as in Buddhism or naturalism. uh, You know, this is a unique message. There's no no promise here for you and I in the here and the now. We're, we are not promised glory on the earth. Now, there are people who try to manipulate the scriptures to that end. You got a prosperity gospel folks out there try to do that, but there's nothing in here that promises glory. When you follow Christ, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said when God calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Is that true? What did God, Christ called those fishermen, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. What is it about that message that's like appealing on a human level? It's like, oh, good. Fishers of men, really? Because that's how, that was their income. That was their livelihood. What'd they do? They were just drawn in. They left their nets lying there by the water's edge. They followed Christ. They answered the call. And they went on with him. And they suffered. He told them, in this world, you're going to have trouble. That is, that is a message you cannot... You don't draw people in with that message. Only God would do. That's a divine message. Man would never write such a message. Man would, would try to snow you. Man would promise you all kinds of glory. Man, the Christian life is not a glorious life. It is a glorious life in the light of eternity. We have a glory that awaits that surpasses all the present sufferings. Right? Everything pales by comparison to that. But there's no, there's no glory that awaits. Uh, when, I, when I surrendered my life to Christ, I knew that when I surrendered my life to ministry and local church ministry. Some people think ministry is glorious. Please. (laughs) My, My first church was this tiny little church in South Dakota where I grew up. I was there part time. Part of my job responsibilities included changing the marquee sign by the road. Churches all, you know, churches used to have a lot of these. You saw these little marquee signs everywhere. My job was to put the letters on the sign, okay? glamorous. And the way that that works if you've ever done anybody ever done this? Yeah. You so the marquee sign, the letters are on these little plexiglass squares, right? Black letters on a transparent plexiglass square and you got to put it out, right? In the exact order as the message is going to go. And you got to get it in order cuz man, you mess up, it's embarrassing and you got to do it all over again. And you don't want to do it all over again if you live in South Dakota in February because it's cold, son, and the snow is like this. And so I'm trudging out, I got my coat, my pockets are jammed with carefully organized stacks of plexiglass letters. And I'm walking out there in the snow to the sign. I got a mop handle. Why do I have a mop handle? Because there's a big old lid on this sign that you gotta lift up, and there's no way to keep it up. And so I stick this mop handle in the snow to prop up in this lid glamorous. And I take these, these letters and you got to put them in. You can't just put them on there. You got to slide them in from the end. And you slide them through these grooves that are caked with ice and grime and all this stuff. And you got to do it with bare hands because gloves don't work out there you'll drop everything and so it's icy it's cold and you cut your hands on the edges because the edges of the little square things are sharp and I'm going in there and the wind is whipping and the ice is blowing and the snow is getting up my face and all this stuff and that mop handle blows over and the sign comes down smacks me on the back of the head and so I'm, I'm doing all this stuff and a big gust of wind came, the sign hit me. I spilled my letters onto the snow and I'm looking around I'm going, no! And so I gather them all up. I try to get them back in order. I look at the sign and to my great chagrin, I realize I'm missing an F. I've got no F. What am I gonna do? I'm looking around in the snow. Where is it? I don't see the F and I don't wanna go back inside. I just wanna finish this stupid job and get this thing over with. And I realize I've got an extra L. And then I remember I got a Sharpie in my back pocket. And I have this epiphany. I can make an F out of an L. And so I take it off, and I'm drawing a little leg, and I'm thinking to myself, Grim, you're at rock bottom. You know? And as I'm doing this, here comes a big old Mack truck, and it hits the puddle right next to the road, and slush all over me, man. I'm standing there, I'm going... This is a glorious life. Amen. But it is. It is because the things done in the name of Christ will last. They they last forever, don't they? You do it for Jesus, it lasts forever, just like the word of God. This is a divine message. It calls us to something so unorthodox, so not typically human. It could only be from God. That these are the things that matter to God. Not the rich, not the mighty, not the elite. God, his ways are not our ways. This is a divine message. Which leads us to the final section here. I want to talk about inerrancy. Because God is who God is, you would expect his book to reflect him. And we serve a perfect God. And he wrote this book. Therefore, a book reflects its author. Let me give you the definition of inerrancy in your notes. The scriptures contain no error at all, in whole or in part. All right? No error at all. Even, even even scientific content, Pastor Scott? I believe so. Yes. I absolutely do. Not everybody agrees with me. I do. And when I get to Genesis, I'll explain why I believe that. Even history, Pastor Scott? Absolutely. In a couple of weeks, we're going to look at some difficult passages. We're gonna answer some Bible difficulties. We're gonna look at several passages and I'm gonna walk through some of these where people say mistakes, contradictions, all this stuff. We're gonna take a look and we're we're gonna show you. Uh, And My word to you is don't get flummoxed. Don't get panicky when people try to throw that junk at you and they say, look, the Bible's full of of mistakes, full of contradictions. A lot of people don't know how to deal with that because they don't read their Bible and, and because they just don't know. It's okay that you don't know. You know what? Somebody throws that at you. Here's what you say. That's really interesting. I've never studied that before. You know what? I'm going to have to study that, and I'll get back to you. And then you go study it, and you'll be glad you did, all right? But inerrancy, why do we believe that the Bible is inerrant? And number one, it's a logical conclusion. A book reflects its author. You just use the brain that God gave you. If we believe that the ultimate origin of the Scripture is God himself, and the process of recording that revelation is guided by the Holy Spirit, and who's the Holy Spirit? He's God third person of the godhead then the content of that revelation necessarily must be perfect as he is perfect if the bible had errors it would not be the word of god and if it were the word of god it had errors then that means we have an error prone god not true number two we believe in inerrancy because scripture is the foundation of all doctrine there's a word Um, epistemology it's our epistemological foundation what does that mean epistemology means how we know what we know this is why it's so ludicrous for anybody to say we should unhitch from any part of scripture son you don't abandon scripture because scripture is how you know scripture informs us of who Jesus is Uh, You know, uh, I heard a pastor say that Christianity did not come from the Bible. The Bible did not create Christianity. Christianity came from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, Okay, nice try, but we know of the resurrection of Jesus Christ because of the Scripture, We know why the resurrection matters because of the scripture. This is God's revelation to us. Christ has no authority. He's just a guy that died that somebody might might be an eyewitness to, but it is the word of God and the fulfillment of prophecy that validates everything that we believe. And so we know who he is because of God's revelation to us. It's our logical foundation. Acts 17, all throughout the New Testament, you see the people going back to the, the word. It's a, it's a standard, they always go back Acts 17, it says now these Jews, speaking of the Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica, why? because they received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so, you guys you hear me say something you, you back me up with scripture, alright you check me, alright I, I, I want to live up to a standard I don't want you to take what I'm saying uh, uh, for granted. I want to know that you want me to be supported biblically in what I'm saying. Don't you just assume I'm spewing truth up here unless I'm backing it up with the Bible, okay? Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Matthew twenty two thirty one. 31, and as for the resurrection of the dead... This is why we don't just say we're Christians merely because of the resurrection. As for the, we can't be Christians apart from the resurrection, but we, we, have, we have to rely on the standard here. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read? Have you not read? I love it. What was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is, he not? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And so even with regard to the concept of rising from the dead, Jesus hearkens to the scriptures, the word of God. And then number three, inerrancy is the dominant historic position of the early church, of the early church. Um, It was not until the 17th or 18th century that either Christians or Jews questioned the inerrancy of Scripture. In fact, Jews today, Orthodox Jews, widely believe in inerrancy, that the Bible has no mistakes in what part of the Bible they believe in. They, they don't see any errors in that, and I, I find it just a tremendous shame that it is so-called Christians who are leading the charge against biblical Inerrancy—they're the ones calling it into into question, and they call themselves progressive. Folks, they are regressive. They're taking us backward, and if you want some of their names, just ask me. I'll warn you all about them. All right. It's very, very serious, and this leads me to the last point here, number four, in your notes, causing people to doubt the veracity of Scripture is a serious biblical offense. It's a serious offense. So we must be able to trust scripture as truth because if you lead someone to believe that it is not true, what does Jesus say about that in Matthew eighteen six. He says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. How do you define Sin. How do we know what sin is? How do we identify what is or is not sin? Well, you have to have a standard, don't you? Where do we find that? It's in the scriptures. The scriptures tell us what sin looks like. And so Jesus is saying that with the standard found there, how do you cause someone to sin? You convince them that the Bible is wrong on that particular matter. If you're causing someone to sin, you must sway them from what the Bible clearly teaches. Folks, this has been the M.O. of our enemy, our ancient foe, the devil, since the Garden of Eden. As that serpent confronted Eve, what did he say to her first? Has God really said you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And to her credit, she said, no, no, he, he did say that God... You know, God did say that we could eat from any tree in the garden, but the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we must not eat from that, and we, mu- we must not touch it lest we die. And he got her a little discombobulated. God didn't say don't touch it. He just said don't eat of it. But she's already wavering, and then he goes in for the kill, and he says, oh, yeah, you will not surely die. What are we doing? He's calling God a liar. He said, no, no, no. that's not true. That word you heard from the Lord, it's not true. Don't believe that. He's wrong. He's wrong. The word of the Lord is wrong. Go ahead. Jesus says, you caused one of these little ones to sin? You don't want to know what you got coming to you. It's a serious biblical offense. And the devil is still operating in this business today. And he's using people who call themselves Christians to do it. So be on guard, arm yourself, search the scriptures. And uh, we're gonna take the next few weeks. We're going next week, we're gonna look at reliability. Can you trust the Bible? We'll show you why you can. We're gonna look at canonicity. The books that I've got in my Bible, why these? Are there others that weren't included, that, that got left out? We'll talk about all that. We'll talk about why there were councils that met to confirm these books did they decide what scripture was or was the purpose of that all for something else we're going to talk about all that's going to be a fascinating conversation the following week we're going to look at some difficult passages work them out together i'm excited thank you for being here let's pray Heavenly Father, asking your blessings tonight upon this group, Uh, what a bunch of Bereans. When I look at that scripture that, that, uh, that praised those Jews that were more noble, it said, why were they noble? Because they searched the scriptures every day. God, these folks are here tonight on a Wednesday, midweek, because they value your word. I affirm that so much, and I encourage that, God, and I pray that you would give them a deeper hunger each and every day of their lives. May they just be ravenous for your word. To know you. How do we know you? We go to your revelation. This is the way that you've given us to go deeper and to understand and to apply what you've shared with us, Christ. And we pray your blessing upon them all, and we look forward to the next time we meet in Jesus' name, amen. You're loved and appreciated. We got some prayer team members.